Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. So this is your second run against uh, incumbent Brian Kemp for governor, and polls show a tight race, especially the poll this morning. Um, now, when you lost in 2018, you didn't traditionally concede, which I appreciated, because you cited voter suppression. Are you confident that this will be a free and fair collection and, uh, um, sorry, um, election and not a repeat performance of what happened before? So I, I appreciate the, the question and the framing. I have never denied that I lost. I don't live in the governor's mansion. I would have noticed. <laughs> May I just say, it's, um, thank you for just admitting outright you didn't win. That's such a oh, rare thing. I know. I, I see our former president. Win. That seems like it. Yeah. I, I did it on the day I didn't win. I, I mean, yeah. I gave a speech. I, I love words. Words matter. They have meaning and heft. And one is, I'm not the governor. Said that. <laughs> the other is, election wasn't fair to voters also said that in this country we have the responsibility to challenge broken systems if we do not lift up problems we will not get answers what we don't have the right to is violent response or to spin out conspiracy theories i don't say things without evidence people don't like to debate Stacey Abrams because How can you because she, she had she knows her stuff and if the voters in Georgia are smart, and I'm sure they are. They'll look and see. The guy in charge of electing Republicans in the Senate, Rick Scott of Florida, proposed a plan. I, I wish I had enough copies to hand, but go online and look at it. I really mean this. It's serious because you're going to make it you're gonna be hard for you to believe. Proposed a plan requiring Congress to vote on the future of Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid every five years. It's up for reauthorization. And I want to remind you, you paid for your Social Security. Every single paycheck from the time you were a kid, you paid for it. So every five years, Congress gets to vote, change, cut, reduce, or eliminate the entirety of Social Security. And it's not just Social Security. Everything that Senator Scott wants, everything in the federal budget to be up for five years, nothing permanent, nothing. That includes veterans' benefits, Pell Grants, everything else. Look it up. It's hard to believe. I would think I'm exaggerating if I didn't look at it myself. And then along comes Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. As my mother would say, God love him. He thinks five years is too long to wait. He wants to put the vote, Social Security, Medicare, on the chopping block every single year. Let me remind you all again, you paid for Social Security. You paid for Medicare. It's taken out of every single one of your paychecks. These guys never give up. Well, guess what? We're not going to give up either. 
Was. Senator Hawley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Cox, I know that Facebook has said in the past that it's their position as a private company, you're not subject to the First Amendment. I, I assume that hasn't changed. Is that right? That's correct, Senator. But uh, the United States government is subject to the First Amendment. I think we can probably all agree on. Hopefully we can. Hopefully that's still true in this country. Um, is it appropriate for Facebook to work with the United States government to avoid the First Amendment, help the U.S. government avoid the First Amendment? Uh, Senator, we do think it is uh, sometimes appropriate to be in contact with government and with government organizations. To help them avoid the First Amendment? Senator, I'm not sure what, what specifically you're referring to. Mm. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think it's appropriate to work with the United States government to target private individual speech that is constitutionally protected? Senator, I'm not aware of, of that. Mm. Well, let me, um, let me educate you. On July 16, 2021, Facebook had an employee at Facebook wrote to the Department of Health and Human Services saying, and I quote, I know our teams met today to better understand the scope of what the White House expects from us on misinformation going forward. On July 23, 2021, a Facebook employee thanked HHS, quote, for taking the time to meet earlier today and wanted to make sure you saw the steps we just took this past week to adjust policies and what we are removing with respect to misinformation. This included, and I'm still quoting, increasing the strength of our demotions for COVID and vaccine-related content. On April 7, 2021, a Facebook employee thanked the CDC for responding to misinformation queries, and I quote, we'll get moving now to be able to remove all but that one claim as soon as the announcement and authorization happens. On July 28th, this year, a Facebook employee reached out to CDC about, quote, doing a monthly misinfo debunking meeting. The CD responded, yes, we would love to do that. I'm sure they would. On July 20th, 2021, Clark Humphrey at the White House, who's digital director of the COVID-19 response team, emailed Dave Sumner at your company, among others, asking any way we can get this pulled down and cited a specific Instagram account Within 46 seconds, your company responded and said, yep, on it. That sounds like what in the law we call a pattern and practice of meeting, coordinating, and colluding with the United States government to target particular speech that no one in any of these emails alleges is incitement, which would not be constitutionally protected, no one in any of these emails alleges it directly encourages violence, which would not be constitutionally protected. So it appears to all be constitutionally protected speech on, I might add, very politically sensitive topics that Facebook is directly working with the U.S. government to target and remove. Is that your company policy to do this kind of thing? Senator, we were, we were quite public about our uh, cooperation with uh, health organizations during the unprecedented time of COVID. We knew that people expected and wanted accurate information on our platform. We had conversations with the CDC, with the World Health Organization, and with other public health organizations, not just in the U.S., but abroad, in order to understand how to help sure, make sure that folks weren't getting information that could cause imminent harm. 
Fair enough. So you're, you're saying that this, this was, in fact, company policy to have these kinds of meetings with HHS, with the CDC, with the White House directly, that you did engage in, in this behavior, and you think that it was entirely fine. Is that your testimony? Senator, I do believe it's appropriate for companies like ours to be in consultation with public health organizations and with government. And, and you, you can confirm that things like taking down a private Instagram account and uh, adjusting your policies at the behest of, of the White House uh, and putting into place misinformation policies at the behest of CDC, that, that those things you think are appropriate. This was company policy to do so. Is that fair to say? Senator, I'm not familiar with the Instagram account specifically that you're referencing, but we do know that people expected and hoped from the platforms that we would help them get accurate information about COVID during the unprecedented time, especially at the beginning. Well, isn't there a difference between you as a platform putting forward information and censoring your users at the behest of the White House, the administration more broadly, and the CDC? Isn't there a distinction there? We specifically uh, wanted to work with public health experts to understand the relationship between information and behavior. And so we did consult with the CDC, the World Health Organization, and others uh, to understand how the, the platform policies we built were affecting public health. Well, you didn't, just, you didn't just consult with them to understand how they affected public health. You actually censored on their behalf. I mean, you, you took these emails. I'm just quoting from a sample of them which, by the way, have been disclosed in litigation, these, these emails show that you took censorship steps, you took down accounts, you planned misinformation policies, you adjusted your policies at the behest of the United States government. I mean, that, that's not just some theoretical thing. That's actually targeting your user's speech. But you're, you're, I appreciate your forthrightness, by the way. So, but you're saying that, that was, you think that's fine and that was your policy. Senator, we... We've been public about our policies on COVID misinformation specifically, as well as on misinformation generally. And so you think there's not, you're not concerned about any of this? Nothing that I just read to you, you're not concerned about it at all? Respectfully, Senator, I think the balance of how to protect free expression as well as public safety is a difficult issue. But it's one we're committed to working with outside experts and publishing our work. Well, um, I appreciate you being so forthright. As I said, this is actually from litigation between the state of Missouri and the state of Louisiana and the federal government. I, I anticipate that your remarks under oath today are going to be very interesting and helpful to that litigation. I'll just say this. My view is, is that the United States government is bound by the First Amendment. They cannot encourage or coerce or incite or collude with a private party to get around the First Amendment, but you've just said to me today that that's basically what they did, that you coordinated with them repeatedly over a pattern of months and years to adjust and target your speech policies for protected speech at the behest of the United States government. I have to tell you, I've got a big problem with that, and I think all your users should too. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We're seeing cooling all around in terms of inflation. Because there was actually some potential good news. That We're glad to see that number wasn't the 8.5% from July. Overall inflation is easing slightly. After reaching 40-year highs, it's trying to roll over there, right? That's the trend we've been talking about. Some very good news when you look across things. So this was the kind of number that is uh, showing that the Fed's medicine is starting to work. What a great day. The Dow down today more than 1,000 points. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It is the 16th of September, year of our Lord, 2022. I wanted to get that intro, which is very long in, because that stuff, 
kind of ties in with what my original podcast was going to be until Operation Fuck Liberals went into effect yesterday, which is why I'm podcasting early. Um, how they're doing it again. You have Abrams, who's a liar. You see what Twitter is doing, and there's so many other things happening to steal an election again. You have them on TV lying about inflation. And then I found this gem. So it's going to be, of course, about Martha's Vineyard today. But I, I found this gem, and I think the most important thing people should see and what needs to be brought to your friends, your family. Um, I don't care if they're a liberal. They're farming out anti-First Amendment stuff to big tech and other agencies. But simultaneously, they're rigging elections like never before. And people say, well, you can't say that. Biden's the winner. Biden was the winner. But this video here shows how they did it. And I want you, as I've done since 2020, take it all and flip it. And Trump did this. Tell me it's okay. If you have questions about what happened in the 2020 election, you're not alone. State legislators and American voters from across the nation also had questions about how the COVID pandemic was used to get around state election laws. But what did they actually do to affect the way people vote? Election officials at all levels used the threat of COVID to make changes long supported by leftists, including deploying unwatched drop boxes, encouraging mass mail-in ballots, and accepting massive outside spending from big tech titans like Mark Zuckerberg. In fact, Zuckerberg gave $400 million to nonprofits to supposedly fortify the election in key districts. The result? Additional votes helping to swing the results toward Biden. Since 2020, several red states have passed laws to strengthen election security. Capital Research Center has tracked some of those changes in state election laws as of the summer of 2022. 24 states have made changes to limit or restrict private funding of government election offices. Some of these bills also introduce voter ID requirements and otherwise safeguard the integrity of elections. What happened when these states tried to make elections secure? Liberal activists lost their minds. One high-profile instance was Georgia's new voting rights legislation. It banned private funding of election offices like Zuckbucks and limited the power of the Secretary of State to make election law changes during a crisis. Liberal critics insisted the new law would disenfranchise minority voters in the state and lead to voter suppression. As a result, with the help of powerful woke CEOs and entertainment figures, the 2021 All-Star Baseball game was yanked from the city, dealing a financial blow to black-owned businesses. But were liberal activists right to be concerned? Now, with the help of data from the Honest Elections Project, we can answer that question. Despite liberal rhetoric that Georgia's new law would cause widespread voter suppression, voters turned out in the 2022 primary at historically high levels. Around 1.9 million Georgians voted in May 2022, far exceeding the 1.2 million that voted in the May 2018 primaries, according to the Honest Elections Project. Voters also told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution they saw short lines and had limited problems on Election Day. 
So the answer to the question of whether state election law changes after 2020 would suppress votes is no, at least in the much debated state of Georgia. Voter suppression myth busted. It goes back to what I said and I've said repeatedly, probably annoying to people like Matt in Oregon who listens, Matt and Sean who listen to the podcast every time. That shit's illegal. You can't do that. You can't just change laws. You can't just change signatures and IDs and just do what you want to do and mass bail unless you have some kind of integrity, election integrity, and they didn't do it. And what they've been talking about, voter suppression, of course, is that, well, red states went, okay, we're not doing this anymore. The Biden administration since 2020 have been playing COVID emergency, non-COVID emergency, COVID emergency, non-COVID emergency over and over and over. Our main subject about immigrants, you know why they're doing it. That's 2 million voters. Even though demos are starting to split on them, but it's voters. They don't do that because they feel bad. It's all performative art. So for our big subject, of course, is Texas and Florida sent people to Martha's Vineyard and the VP's house. And they're big mad. But I think this tweeter, and I just saw it, feel like this is less performative outrage when 50-plus migrants were basically cooked to death in a tractor trailer. We didn't get that upset. And I want a Wayback Machine. This is what they said about kids in cages and all that shit. And they've been doing it for two years. And our last soundbite today on this whole subject is that they got to go because Martha Vineyards isn't going to help those 50. They just... Performative art. I will do, yes. Uh, what you're proposing or what the president's proposing here does not sound like it's in keeping with American tradition when it comes to immigration. The Statue of Liberty says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. It doesn't say anything about speaking English or being able to uh, compu- be a computer programmer. Uh, aren't you trying to change what it means to be an immigrant coming into this country if, if you're telling them uh, you have to speak English? Uh, can't people learn how to speak English when they get here? Well, first of all, right now, it's a requirement that to be naturalized, you have to speak English. So the notion that speaking English wouldn't be a part of our immigration systems would be actually very ahistorical. Secondly, I don't want to get off into a whole thing about history here, but the Statue of Liberty is a symbol of liberty enlightening the world. It's a symbol of American liberty lighting the world. The poem that you're referring to that was added later is not actually part of the original Statue of Liberty, but more fundamentally, the so history, saying, so they, saying, but more fundamentally, you're saying the that history. That does not represent I'm saying that. I'm the saying that the notion. I'm saying the notion that the. I'm saying the notion. I'm sorry. No, that sounds like, that sounds Jim, like, let me ask you a question. That sounds like some uh, national park revisionism. No, so what I'm asking you is. The Statue of Liberty Jim, has always Jim, been let me ask you a question. hope to the world. Jim, for people to send. Jim, do you believe people to this country? Jim, and they're not always going to speak Jim, English, Stephen. Jim, do you believe? They're not always going to be highly skilled. They're not always going to be. Jim, 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 I appreciate your. Speech. Jim, I appreciate your speech, so let's let's talk about this. Jim, let's talk about this. In 1970, when we let in 300,000 people a year, was that violating or not violating the Statue of Liberty law of the land? 
In, 19, in the 1990s, when it was half a million a year, was it violating or not violating the Statue of Liberty law of the land? Was it violating? When it was 700,000 a year. No, tell me what years, tell me what years, tell me what years meet, tell me what years meet Jim Acosta's definition of the Statue of Liberty poem, Law of the Land. So you're saying a million a year is the Statue of Liberty number. 900,000 violates it, 800,000 violates it. You're, you're sort of bringing a Jim. press one for English philosophy here to Jim. immigration, and that's never for been Jim. what the United States has been about, Steve. That I mean, you're, but you're also, your, your statement's also shockingly ahistorical in another respect, too, which is if you look at the history of immigration, it's actually ebbed and flowed. We've had periods of very large waves, followed by periods of less immigration and more immigration, and during the, we're we've had a period of immigration right now, the yeah, president wants to build it's a wall, actually, you want to actually, bring about a sweeping Change Surely, Jim, you don't actually think that a wall affects green card policy. You couldn't possibly believe that, do you? Actually, the notion that you actually think immigration is at a historic law, the foreign-born population in the United States today, the Jim, Jim, talk, talking about how border crossings. Do you really? I, mean, I want to be serious, Jim. Do you really at CNN not know the difference between green card policy and illegal immigration? Sir, you, I mean, you really don't know that. Cuban immigrant. He came to this country in 1962, uh, right before the Cuban Missile Crisis, and obtained a green card. <laughs> yes, people. Remember, for most of us, we never even knew what the plaque at the base of the freaking Statue of Liberty even said. But that was a daily thing. All of a sudden, our immigration policy was no longer about laws and borders and things like that. No, it was 100% straight up motherfucking plaque. Give me your cold, tired, hungry, blah, blah, blah. And before we start the vids and articles on this, because it's just great shit if you're a podcaster. This is some good ass shit. I can't download this, but I'm going to play this because we've said on this show over and over, the Biden administration is illegally against the law. It's against the law. There's a federal law. You cannot transport illegals. They've used military aircraft. That's doubly illegal. You can't transport illegals with military aircraft. And they've been dumping people all over the country, usually in rural areas, usually red districts. We've had three flights in Chattanooga, Memphis, Knoxville's got flights. They've never coordinated. They never told the local uh, officials that this was going to happen. They might have had an NGO to meet them. But nobody knew this was going to happen, and they don't have the facilities or the support to be able to handle all these people. Here is PBS. This is from June 4th, 2021. A surge in crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border in recent months has led U.S. border agents to drop some migrants off at sites in rural American towns to begin their wait for court hearings. Special correspondent Dan Lieberman reports... The actual headline from this from PBS.org, U.S. Border Patrol is increasingly dropping off migrants in rural areas lacking resources. Next article, Biden and Minigan flying migrants who cross border in one place to another place before expelling them. Advocates say migrants on flights often think they're being allowed to stay in the U.S. only to be expelled in unfamiliar parts of Mexico. That's from June 18th, 2021. That's pretty fucked up. But you notice, as in kids in cages, 
Media doesn't even cover it. They just don't fucking care. This was five alarm fire when Trump was president, even though it was Obama policy. We were going crazy. They don't even have reporters at the border. They're not there. But Ken Burns, it makes DeSantis a Nazi. This is history. All of your documentaries are about history. Yeah. But all of them also make you think about where we are exactly. now. And we woke up to the news this morning that Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida sent two plane loads of migrants uh, to Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts, including kids and whatnot. And I'm not saying this is not a one for one. This is not a parallel here in any way. But it does address some of the same themes that are part of this documentary. Well, Ken, it's I wonder if the you abstraction of human life. It's basically saying that you can use a human life that is as valuable as yours or mine or Lynn's and to put it in a position of becoming a political pawn in somebody's authoritarian game. This is the uh, coming straight out of the authoritarian playbook. This is what's so uh, disturbing about DeSantis, is to use human beings, to weaponize human beings for a political purpose. It's like when somebody disagrees with him in Florida, like the Walt Disney Company, he punishes them. This is not the actions of a person participating in a democratic process in which there's an exchange of ideas. This is about punishing political enemies, putting on uh, shows, political shows, political theater. And in this case, this is with the lives of human beings. And what's so ironic is these are Venezuelan refugees, which DeSantis should be supporting because they're trying to flee the, the corruption of a left-wing government and all of the pain there. And so the, the, the level of cynicism is beyond that. And, and what we find in all our films is that the themes that we engage in the past are present today. And so when you look at the story that we're telling of the U.S. and the Holocaust, you understand that the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. We promise you. Ken Burslin. That is the most hypocritical, crazy shit I've ever seen. And it's all because they're scared. They're 100% scared of what's going to happen because, folks, people are for this. They're not against it. This is the kind of performative art we're talking about. The hurling of migrants at liberal cities and towns thing is narrowly funny in a meta way, only because it premised on the assumption that everyone is as xenophobic and cold-hearted as the governors and officials doing the hurling. And I don't think they've once been proven right. Hurling. Majority of Texas voter back Abbott busing migrants to Democratic-controlled cities. Of course they do. Of course they do. For fuck's sake, why wouldn't they? Their towns, their fucking town, I mean, El Paso, you're going to see it. It's a fucking shithole. Two million people have invaded our country. They're just dropping them off. They're doing the exact same thing, but nobody cares until a conservative does it. Mediaike, CNN John Berman, definitely isn't comparing DeSantis migrant flights to Martha Vineyard with Holocaust, he says. No, he did. That's, that's what they wanted to do. That's exactly what they want. Later on, there's no, they are you, human beings. Yeah, they are. But uh, across the board, you've let... 
Thousands die. They've been dying everywhere. Then this article is from fucking November 17th. DeSantis claims Biden running clandestine flights to send migrants to Florida, but the routine transport also occurred under Trump. No, it didn't. That's CNN. That's a lie. Chuck Todd says sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard is inhumane because it's literal island that doesn't have infrastructure. And it's all due to treating people as political pawns, leaving some migrants who might have been misled to believe they were going elsewhere, as reported by NPR, on a literal island that doesn't have any infrastructure designed to help them at all. In a word, it's inhumane. Bottom line. What about Biden? Where is this under Biden? There, we have actual human trafficking. We have actual fucking fentanyl problems in this country. But they don't care unless it's a conservative. They just don't fucking care. It is, it is fucking comical. Totally comical. So here's the first wave and some videos of them and KJB. P talking about it in the usual hypocritical way. chess when Trump was president, saying they were so proud to be sanctuary jurisdictions, saying how bad it was to have a secure border. The minute even a small fraction of what those border towns deal with every day is brought to their front door, they all of a sudden go berserk. And they're so upset that this is happening. And it just shows you, you know, their virtue signaling is a fraud. Okay. They... They are supporting policies that are just frankly indefensible. It is not defensible for a superpower to not have any control over the territory of its country, over the borders of its country. And he inherited a situation where you didn't have this happening. And yes, we needed to build the wall. There was more that we needed to do. He reversed the Trump policies, knowing what would end up happening. And you know, one of the reasons why we want to transport because we obviously it's expensive if people are coming here you gotta it taxes social services and all these other things
from our southern border have just arrived outside Vice President Kamala Harris's residence at the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. Griff Jenkins is live on the scene to tell us more. Uh, Griff, uh, is that Massachusetts Avenue that I'm looking at right there? Yeah. Good morning, Steve, Ainsley, and Brian. This bus just arrived moments ago. I talked to some of the folks. Apparently, this bus has come from Del Rio, Texas. That's what a gentleman on the bus told me. And these, pardon me, de donde eres? Venezuela. Venezuela? Habla inglés? No. Sí, no? No? La, la, la Presidenta Harris dice que frontera cerrado. La frontera es cerrado o abierto? Abierto. Abierto. So what she's saying, Steve, I asked her, Vice President Harris says that the border is closed. She says it's open as we see these migrants coming across now. We're not sure how many there are. We do know that according to Texas Governor Abbott's office, there have been about 7,900. Pardon me, do you speak English? I'm in English? No, amigo. De donde eres? Venezuela. Venezuela? Everybody from Toros, uh, Venezuela? Sí, venimos prácticamente de Venezuela, país, un país muy duro. En realidad, queríamos ya salir de allá, tenemos días viajando. Migración también nos ha jodido mucho en México, pero lo que queremos es triunfar, queremos evolucionar, queremos tener de todo, queremos... Ok, thank you. Yeah, buena suerte. So I'm not going to be able to translate all of that, and I wouldn't even try because it wouldn't look good on live TV. But as you can see, they're coming across here, all of these migrants. It appears to be at least 20 or so at this point. We have two buses. So what I was saying was we know from Governor Abbott's office there have been about 7,900 migrants on over 190 buses coming to D.C., more than 2,200 on more than 40 buses to New York, and, of course, about five buses to Chicago with a little over 300 migrants. I did not dare Buenos días, ¿cómo está? ¿De dónde eres? No, no entiendo, no inglés. ¿Habla inglés? No, no, no. Ok. What's the difference between Texas busing migrants to D.C. and the federal government flying migrants to, say, New York in the middle of the night in other cities? It's very different because we're not doing it as a as using migrants as a political pawn. The busing aside, how do you explain this influx? Well, again, we, we understand that we have work to do. We understand that. And we have been doing the work to do that. Uh, we have taken unprecedented action over the past year and a half to secure our border and rebuild a safer and orderly process system, addressing uh, hate-fueled violence uh, in communities that we see across the country. And then the last topic um, on what you call this political stunt with the asylum seekers. Let's specifically get into the, lo the locations. Martha's Vineyard, the Naval Observatory. Can you talk to the issue of, you said Boston. <laughs> It's an island that they sent mm -hmm. the asylum seekers to. 
an island that um, is known to be, in some instances, a democratic haven. Uh, former presidents, former democratic presidents, vacation there, own homes there, etc. Could you speak to that as well as the Naval Observatory? What I could say, and I've been very clear, uh, it is a political stunt. That's what we're seeing from governor, uh, governors, Republican governors in, in particular. And um, it is a cruel, inhumane way of treating uh, people who are fleeing communism, uh, people who are, who are uh, and we're not just talking about people, we're talking about children, we're talking about families uh, who are promised uh, a home, promised a job, put on a bus, and, uh, you know, driven to a place that they do not know. And it is a cruel thing to do. According to local reports, Governor Ron DeSantis sent a hired videographer on the plane to Massachusetts uh, to order to capture footage of them being dropped off. Remember, there were children on this plane. So I cannot speak to uh, anything outside of what we're seeing, right, which is it is a, indeed a political, uh, a political play. It's cruel. It is a cruel uh, way for elected officials, the people who have power, uh, the people who are elected uh, by their constituencies, uh, to behave in this way, uh, and, um, and we should call it out. And other Republicans should call it out. Republicans should be, their colleagues should be calling out uh, the cruel way that they are playing and what they're doing uh, with their cruel political games. And uh, again, these are, these are families that are including children. All right. So, as we have said repeatedly, there is a, there's a process in place. Uh, we have had a process in place. There's a legal way of doing this. Um, and uh, for managing migrants, Republican governors interfering in that process and using migrants as political pawns is, uh, is shameful, is reckless, and just plain wrong. And remember, these are people who are fleeing communism, who are fleeing hardship. And if these governors truly care about uh, border security, they should ask Texas Governor Ted Cruz and Florida Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott why they voted against the president's request for record, record funding for the Department of Homeland Security. That is unadulterated lying from her. Unadulterated lying. It's just a lie. They're just stacking the deck to get more people to vote. That's all it is. Remember, they said we can replace them. Martha Vineyard, it is an emergency. 50 fucking people. Matthew Gertz blames Tucker Carlson for it. It's his fault because he talked about it. And, and he's a horrible human being. Don't worry, I got I got Tucker in a bit. Maju robs you uh, with Bob Menendez told me of migrants being sent to other states. They lure people like human traffickers onto buses and unknowingly where they're going to. They supposedly are the advocates for human life. They have no concern for the lives of these people. That's very interesting because CNN actually asked him, and that's a lie, Bob De Menendez. These migrants at this shelter in Eagle Pass, Texas, most from Venezuela, have all just crossed the Rio Grande from Mexico into Texas, surrendered to the U.S. Border Patrol, received future immigration court dates, and some are about to board this bus 
for a 1,700-mile trip to Washington, D.C., a plan started by the Texas governor in April. Some people say it's cruel. But this story may not be what you expect. Listen to these migrants, like 28-year-old Genesis Figueroa from Venezuela. Are you taking the bus? Tu eres tomando el bus a Washington, D.C.? Hoy sí. Today, yes. Sí. Sí. Tu eres feliz? Are you happy? Sí, sí. And listen to those who advocate for the migrants. They want to go in these buses. Valeria Wheeler is the executive director of Mission Border Hope, a nonprofit organization which serves this border community in Eagle Pass and operates this shelter for the recent arrivals. She's aware of the political component to the long bus rides, but says many of these people want to go to Washington or New York, the two locations where the Texas state buses are going. And you're saying no one is being forced to go on these buses? No one has been forced. They're going on it because they want to? Yes. This free ride to New York or Washington? Mm-hmm. Hundreds of people come to the shelter each day. The people who work here say it's an average of about 500 people daily. Many of these people have family in the United States, family with money, and in no time at all, they'll be in their family's hometowns. But other people here have no family, have absolutely no idea where they're going to go next. Genesis Figueroa has no family in the United States, but she traveled a month and a half by foot, bus, and boat to get here. She says, I got very tired, my legs hurt, and I got sick. I came down with pneumonia. I was hospitalized for three days in Guatemala. Genesis says she does have friends in Washington. So she says she and her husband are happy to take the Washington bus. Washington, D.C. has 40 horas, 40 hours. Ay, sí, es mucho tiempo. Much time. Pero ya tenemos bastante tiempo. She says we've been on the road for so long, we don't mind two or three more days. Cousins Luis Polito and Einar Garrido took six weeks to get here from Venezuela. And then something horrible happened. Luis says we left in search of a dream, but now it's a very difficult, hard situation because this trip took my brother's life. Tragically, Luis's younger brother Juan disappeared when they were all swimming across the Rio Grande. Shelter officials had just informed him Juan's body was found. He drowned. The cousins say they will go ahead with their plans and take the Washington bus. Chicago. Luis says our destination is Chicago, but adds they will get off the bus along the route in Kentucky and their relatives will pick them up there. The executive director here confirms the buses have indeed let off passengers along the way once they get out of Texas. The time has come for the bus to leave. Genesis Figueroa gets processed by members of the Texas State Guard. And so do cousins Luis Polido and Einar Garrido. And then 41 men, women and children come out in the blazing sun to board the bus for the 40-hour ride. Genesis says she's ready. She says she hopes to support her family back at Venezuela by cleaning, cooking, or doing office work. Luis and Einar said they'd like to help their families by working in the restaurant business. Thank you, Infinity, thank you. The bus pulls away. Each passenger we talk to saying they appreciate getting the air-conditioned bus ride to what they hope is a much better road ahead. They knew where they're going. All these people want to go. They want to get to New York. Elizabeth Warren exploiting vulnerable people for political stunts is repulsive and cruel. Yeah, shut up. You've been doing it forever. As DeSantis and Abbott send immigrants to cities, towns of political opposition, worth recalling when a similar was proposed, it was deemed illegal. Here's the deal. I replied to her, if you're a real fucking journalist, why haven't you known that Biden's been doing this forever? 
This is what they're doing. They're just chucking people into red states to change the electorate. It's happening all the time. All the fucking time. But our media doesn't even cover the border, so fuck, they don't know. DeSantis is despicable. People, they're people, not illegal aliens. It's most certainly not cargo. Human beings. This is an abject lesson about how he deals with people he deems other. Really? We just had a president come on and say everybody who disagrees with him are enemies of the state. You got no moral high ground, folks. New York mayor, they're at a breaking point because they've got like 6,000. Seriously. 6,000. Breaking point. 2 million people have flowed through. These planes were filled with actual human beings, people with dignity, people with hopes and dreams, people with names and families. And this Christian man used them as props. Christian. They really went after the Molly Jong fast. They all went after the Christianity. Christian. That's not very Christian of you. This is their emergency declaration. This is what they were saying. They're, they're such fucking liars. Guy Benson covers, sums it up. Not a peep about the raging border crisis with its cartel-enriching chaos and death directly incentivized by their policies until bad Greg and bad Ron sent a handful of illegal immigrants to their deep blue enclaves. Then the mortality howling begins, ridiculous but revealing. Do I have this picture? I think I got this picture. That's what these people are. They have all the signs. They believe all the cliches, but not on their fucking watch. And the most amazing thing about this is Latino voters are splitting along economic lines. John Hayward. Shipping a tiny fraction of illegal aliens to blue states and elite enclaves is the most brilliant political move in new century. We should have done it a long time ago. Now let's find more ways to drag those bubbled hypocrites into the world they made for the rest of us. It's a pity we have to drop busloads of illegals in the backyards of bubbled elites to get them to give a damn about the border crisis they created. But that's absolutely where we are. Decades of appealing to their sense of duty for American people sure as hell didn't work. It didn't. These fucking people have been for sanctuary cities because it's a nice la- it's a it's a nice fucking cl- bumper sticker until you have all these people in your fucking backyard and your place turns into a shithole. So here's our media, and then we got some good, good, good rebuttals. I love politics. The media jerk off of the week. So hot. All right. Yesterday, undocumented immigrants were put on planes and flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Florida Governor 
Ron DeSantis said he used his state's funds to do that. That means taxpayers paid for it. And his spokesperson added that places like Massachusetts and New York should take care of them since they're the ones inviting them here by calling themselves sanctuary cities. Now, I, call me crazy, but I remember the big, tall, green lady, you know, the one that's yeah. over on the river. And she kind of said, send me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I thought that was part of what we did here in the United States. We welcomed people, invited people who were going through crap in the countries they lived in, getting abused in the countries they lived in. I thought we asked people to come here. And I know that uh, Ron DeSantis's great-great-grandma arrived at uh, in Ellis Island in 1917 from Italy. She also could not read or write, but no one gave her permission to come. She come, and we still took her in. So I get that. I, I understand what they're trying to do. I get they're, tr they're trying to make a point. But it's these are people you're playing with. These are real live people with children and older people. And, you know, we can work it out. But if you're going to be a bonehead, yeah. who wants to play with you? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I call me crazy, but I, I don't understand why you got to be nasty about it. Why it can't be. We all know there's a migrants are flown to Martha's Vineyard, not knowing where they are, how they wound up being used for politics. We're trying to coordinate to help all of you. Back in this country, we want to tell you about an escalation in the political fight over immigration. Dozens of apparent migrants landed by charter flight uh, on a rocky island in the Atlantic, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. This was yesterday afternoon. They arrived as part of what Governor Ron DeSantis calls a relocation program. Many did not know where they were going, and local officials on the island were not given any advance notice. Volunteers on Martha's Vineyard found themselves scrambling to find shelter, food, water, and other services to accommodate the unforeseen arrival of 50 migrants, including the elderly and children, flown there as part of a relocation plan originated by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Martha's Vineyard is a tiny island of 15,000 people yes, without an ice court, without an infrastructure that can handle an influx like this. I thought the word inhumane was a good good one to use in this particular case. The people don't know where they're going. The people that are there don't know you're coming. Right. It's good to see, though, that they're being welcomed and that people mm. are trying to help them. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. Volunteers. Exactly. I've been to Martha's Vineyard many times. It's a great, great place, but at least give people some notice so they can prepare. Controversial move. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis sends planes filled with migrants to Martha's Vineyard. The reaction there is the battle over immigration intensifies. And now to that dramatic and controversial twist in the battle over immigration overnight. The governor of Florida taking credit for sending at least two planes filled with migrants to the wealthy Massachusetts island of Martha's Vineyard. This is seen as an escalation by Republican governors upset with President Biden's immigration and border policies. They did have to scramble to provide some humanitarian aid to those who are arriving and they like it to senior political analyst John Avalon joins us now. Look, this is a significant escalation of the strategy that uh, Governor Abbott in Texas has been doing and Governor DeSantis of Florida trying to elbow his way into this game. I, I think here's what's significant based on what we know. Um, first of all, the fact that DeSantis apparently used Florida taxpayer funds to basically charter a flight from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. So let's be clear. This is a political stunt to prove a point. Definitionally. And I don't think he would use that language, but I also don't think he would deny that. 
Right. No, I mean, the, the, to, to a large extent, the sort of uh, pitch to be sort of Trumpism without Trump still relies on, on being a troll king and seeing how much you could escalate those sorts of politics. We're using people who would be in many cases defined as not just refugees, but given that many are from Venezuela, uh, refugees from a, a socialist hellhole, frankly, given the 20 years of what Chavez and Maduro have done to that nation, um, that these folks would be used as pawns is particularly interesting and troubling, given also the fact that there are around a quarter of a million Venezuelans living in Florida. And you got to wonder what they think about seeing some of their former uh, you know, fellow countrymates being used as political pawns, given the devastation of that country. Yeah, I, I will say this. Two things that people need to take into account when they're talking about this. Uh, number one, these are human beings. Wh whatever you think about the immigration crisis, these are human beings, including children. And the second thing, and again, whatever you think about the immigration crisis, if it's a crisis, Ron DeSantis is getting what he wants out of this to an extent he right thinks. now. What he wants is publicity. Yep. And he's getting it. Yeah, I mean, you're dealing with he, he is. This is this is political performance art that treats refugees and human beings and migrants as utterly disposable. But I, I do want to emphasize the fact that what's different about this, perhaps politically, is the fact that many, if not most, are from Venezuela. And that is a different political category, different geopolitical category, given how many conservatives have righteously rallied around the cause of Venezuelans trying to resist the Maduro regime. Um, and, and this all of a sudden adds insult to that particular in, in, you know, injury to see them be used as political props in this particular way, regardless of what they're trying to leave. John Avalon, thank you very much for putting us all in the context for us. So, what are the most difficult challenges right now? The difficult challenges are uh, we have, at some point in time, they have to move to somewhere else, right? We, we cannot, we don't have the services to take care of 50 immigrants, um, and we, we certainly don't have housing. We're in a housing crisis as we are on this island, and so we, we don't, we can't house everyone here that lives here and works here. We don't have housing for 50 more people. It's fucking comedic. They didn't even cover the border until now. Now it's an issue. And it's just like with Trump. It's like with everything else. They really don't fucking care. But they sure loved Twitter yesterday. Here's just some of them. I didn't want to do all the slides. Wealthy libs seeing a handful of immigrants in their neighborhood. Deep Deeply sick dehumanizing Chris Hayes. Eric Solware. Solwell, does America face a migration issue at our border because of our poor economic and security conditions in countries south of us? Of course. Should we exploit that crisis by using desperate humans as political pawns? Hell no, you are. Chip Franklin, I don't get it. Maybe because I'm not a Republican. Could someone explain to me how spending money to ship, it was budgeted. They put it in their budget. I'm not even going to read anymore. It's just fucking comedic. It's just fucking comedic. So here is a long soundbite by Tucker. This is some of the funniest shit ever, but I want you to focus on the fact that um, Michelle Obama is a fucking racist. She's 100% racist, and it's sad how racist she is. And then there's a Ben Shapiro track. Maybe things aren't as they seem. Our first clue is Barack Obama. Barack Obama is a part-time resident of Martha's Vineyard. Obama is also, of course, as you know, the country's greatest proponent of diversity. For years, Obama earnestly told us that immigrants were better than Americans. They were holy. They make our country strong. 
America is and always has been a nation of immigrants. Throughout our history, immigrants have come to our shores in wave after wave from every corner of the globe. Every one of us, unless we're Native American, has an ancestor who was born somewhere else. That's what makes America special. That's what makes us strong. The basic idea of welcoming immigrants to our shores is central to our way of life. It is in our DNA. So that was basically the whole presidency right there for eight years, Obama hectoring us about diversity. But he didn't just talk about it. He spent his two years in office making certain that places like Des Moines, Iowa and Portland, Maine became much less white than they previously had been because as he so often told us, whiteness is bad, it's a disease. So we recall being a little confused when we read that Barack Obama had spent $12 million to buy an eight bathroom oceanfront property on Martha's Vineyard, which is one of the whitest places on earth. Really, Martha's Vineyard? Why not Baltimore or Gary, Indiana? Is there really no real estate left in Detroit for the Obama family compound? There's gotta be. What's going on here? We didn't know. And then in 2019, Michelle Obama explained it to us. Listen to this. We grew up in the period, as I write, of called white flight. Yeah. That as families like ours, upstanding families like ours, you know, who were doing everything we were supposed to do and better, um, as we moved in, uh, white folks moved out because they were afraid of what our families represented. And I always stop there when I talk about this out, out in the world because, you know, I want to remind white folks that y'all were running, running from us and you're still running <laughs> because we're no different than the immigrant families that are moving in, the families in Pilsen, the, the, the families that are coming from other places to try to do better. And so, yeah, I felt, I feel a sense of injustice. So there she was reminding white folks who badly needed reminding that the Obamas are, quote, no different from the immigrant families moving in because white people hate them, too. They're still running, as she just said. So that explained it to us. The Obamas were, in fact, despised immigrants. So when they moved to a $12 million seaside compound on Martha's Vineyard, the point is not to live in luxury with other rich people. No, obviously, the point is to diversify Martha's Vineyard, to strike a blow for justice. That made sense to us, and we felt better. But then last night happened, and we started to rethink our assumptions about the Obamas, about a lot of things. Because a plane load of highly diverse immigrants arrived on Martha's Vineyard to join the Obamas. But the Obamas didn't welcome them. There was not a word from Barack or Michelle Obama. Barack wasn't waiting at the airport to greet the diversifiers with flowers. He didn't issue a statement of congratulations. He didn't invite a single Venezuelan to his home. How come? Could it be? that Barack Obama isn't really actually in real life in favor of diversity at all? Could it be that Barack Obama strongly prefers blonde soul cycle moms in Lululemon to sweaty third world campesinos in dirty work pants? Could it be? We can't say. But we can tell you that if you wanna find out what people really think, go ahead and ignore what they say and watch how they live. And by that measure, the one that matters, Barack and Michelle Obama are every bit as bigoted as any board member at any restricted country club in the deep south assuming those still exist. Those people? They're not dating my daughter, I can tell you that. So in other words, we learned this week that Barack Obama really is a racist and not in the way you've always assumed. Obama may hate white people, he certainly seems to, but he also demands to live around them and only them. But the Obamas, to be fair, are not alone in this. His friends at the news networks in Washington, New York, and Los Angeles feel exactly the same way because they're exactly the same sort of people. 
CNN, for example, spent the day interviewing people connected in some way to Martha's Vineyard. Turns out that precisely none of them were excited about the plane load of Venezuelans. One of them, the state rep for the island, even blamed this show for the sudden blessed surge in diversity. Watch this. Ron DeSantis and Republicans might want to play political games with people's lives. I believe that's incredibly inhumane to be using women and children and families as a political pawn that you can then talk about on Tucker Carlson and pretend to be tough on immigration. Wow. So see if you can follow the argument here. When penniless illegal aliens show up in Brownsville, Texas, one of the poorest cities in the United States, they are noble strivers. They're looking for a better life in this country, and we applaud them. Good luck in Brownsville, newly arrived immigrants. But when these very same people jump the moat and get a free flight to Martha's Vineyard, it's something else entirely. It is, as the state rep just told you, quote, playing political games with people's lives because it's dangerous. These immigrants could wander into a clam bake by accident or worse, much worse. Earlier today, CNN anchor John Berman, who's got fired, by the way, this morning, this morning, John Berman interviewed noted filmmaker Ken Burns. Burns is famous, but sad, exactly the kind of middle-aged prestige hound who spends an awful lot of time looming around Martha's Vineyard looking for other famous people. Burns has a new film out that blames the United States, of all countries on Earth, for the Holocaust. Now that the World War II generation has passed, Ken Burns can do that. There's no chance angry veterans will show up at his house and beat him with their canes for besmirching the memory of their closest friends who died in their early 20s fighting the Nazis. So Ken Burns can say whatever he wants, and many will believe him. So this morning, Burns played the role of Holocaust expert on CNN. And you know what Ken Burns has discovered? Ken Burns has discovered that Ron DeSantis sending illegal aliens to Martha's Vineyard is pretty much exactly what Hitler did. Pretty much exactly. Watch this. All of your documentaries are about history. Yeah. But all of them also make you think about where we are exactly. now. And we woke up to the news this morning that Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida sent two plane loads of migrants uh, to Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts and kids and whatnot. And I'm not saying this is not a one for one. This is not a parallel here in any way, but it does address some of the same themes. This is the uh, coming straight out of the authoritarian playbook. This is what's so uh, disturbing about DeSantis is to use human beings, to weaponize human beings for a political purpose. Ooh, you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? It's literally, literally just like the Holocaust. Edgar Town is Dachau. Oak Bluff says Treblinka. The horrors. This is genocide. And it may be, but of course, everything is relative. Martha's Vineyard may be a modern day death camp, but compared to where illegal aliens usually go, it doesn't look that bad. Let's compare this for fun. On your screen, you will see images recently shot in America's border towns, which are now completely overrun under Joe Biden's immigration policy. You will notice if you look carefully, chaos, violence, and filth. Okay, now we will take you to Martha's Vineyard. It's hellish, perhaps, but in a very different way. Families eating together on balconies overlooking the water, women doing their shopping in a quaint little town on bicycles, couples strolling along the boardwalk, sailboats. Doesn't look that bad. Ah, but that's exactly the problem, the media told us today. Martha's Vineyard may seem like one of the richest places on the planet, but somehow, somehow, there aren't enough social services there. It's bereft of social services, unlike Brownsville. As CBS News put it, quote, Martha's Vineyard is not an urban metropolitan area with a robust social services infrastructure. There's no Justice Department immigration court where the migrants can attend asylum hearings. There's no ICE field office where migrants can check in. Now, 
But you see, Martha's Vineyard is in, quote, an urban area with a, quote, robust social services in infrastructure that other people get to deal with. And honestly, that's true. And it's kind of the whole idea. That's why DeSantis sent the illegal aliens to Martha's Vineyard. People who make and advocate for certain policies should at some point have to live with those policies. But until now, they haven't had to. Bill Gates goes to Martha's Vineyard. So does Oprah, James Taylor, Spike Lee, Amy Schumer, and many more. And all of them, everyone is a much better person than you are because they support diversity. And now, for the first time, they're going to have some diversity. But it's just the beginning. Martha's Vineyard will need many, many more illegal aliens, tens of thousands more until the island is no longer majority white. Only then can it be a good place. Yet at the same time, the people who currently go to Martha's Vineyard are going to have to keep going there. They can't run away to somewhere else. That would be immoral. It would be, as Michelle Obama has told us, white flight. Now, massive demographic change will obviously make Martha's Vineyard a very different sort of place, but that's okay. Change is good. Anyone who fears change is a racist. We know that for sure because they've told us that for years. So where, you may ask, will all these new people live on such a small island? Simple. First, they can occupy Barack Obama's compound. There is no reason Obama needs that much space. Nobody needs that much space. You could probably fit a dozen immigrant families in Barack Obama's pool house and another five or six in the pantry. Keep going. Build a soccer field on the lawn, an outdoor goat barbecue by the back door, and bingo, you've got affordable housing. But it won't be enough. The vineyard is going to need to construct shanty towns for all these new people. But we can't call them shanty towns. Obviously, that's demeaning. So we're going to call them townships after Obama's favorite country. And then we're going to give them dignified names that suggest some kind of victory over adversity. Mandela, Cesar Chavezville, Kamala Apopolis. Now, each side, each one, will put a plaque with that famous Emma Lazarus poem, just so that everybody knows that these are not ordinary favelas. These are moral victories. As the signs say in Martha's Vineyard to this day, no human is illegal. Love is love. That's just science. But speaking of science, what will the environmental impact of all this new development be? That's a massive concern on Martha's Vineyard, and for good reason. But in this case, it's not a concern. None of these new townships will have running water or electricity. So by definition, they will be carbon neutral. It'll be part of the green revolution. Local law enforcement services won't be strained either because they won't be needed. None of these new arrivals will be bound by local laws. Why would they be? They ignored federal law to get here. There's no reason that they should have to observe the vineyards ordinances against, say, drunk driving or defecating in public. And just in case there are still vineyarders who think they have the right to protect what they own, think again, people. We refer you to the case of the fascist McCloskey family in St. Louis who once tried that, tried to defend what's theirs, and they got indicted for it. So that's not allowed. But we can't fully trust you. Somebody's going to have to go door to door to make sure that not one person on Martha's Vineyard keeps a gun at home. Because self-defense can be tempting, even for Democratic voters. There's a lot of change for the vineyard, and they're going to need to start work soon. The summer season begins on Memorial Day. So when Amy Schumer shows up to her place in June, she better be ready to find an illegal alien family using her bath towels. Yes, she will. And let's hope she doesn't complain about it. Because as Joe Biden often reminds us, illegal immigration is a gift. Guess what? They're the reason why. The legal as well as undocumented. The reason why our society is functioning. The reason why our economy is growing. We don't talk about that. 
We stand up and act like it's a burden. It is not a burden. It's a gift. Hear that? Hear that? Illegal immigration is not a burden. It's a gift, Dumbo. So Martha's Vineyard received an enormous gift last night. Think of it like a perpetual Christmas, but noisier. And you can't beat the timing, as Kareem Jean-Pierre just reminded us today at the White House, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. Perfect! So roll with it, Martha's Vineyard. Things are about to change a lot for you. But that's okay. Radical destructive change is the essence of anti-racism. And as you've told us so many times, you support anti-racism. Lest we need to remind you. And in any case, pretty soon you'll have no memory of the way things were before. Martha's Vineyard will feel and look just like El Paso, and that will all seem normal to you. What's El Paso like, you wonder? Haven't been there lately? Okay. Well, here's some recent pictures. I want to show you an exact look of what we're seeing out here. We're right next to the Greyhound bus station, where, as we've been telling you for days now, migrants, mostly a large group of Venezuelans, have been using this area as a temporary camp and a home. Now take a look at this video from earlier this morning and overnight, where you can see migrants have set up sleeping arrangements on cardboard and mattresses in this same spot here outside the bus station. D'Agostino and other city leaders said their number one priority is to avoid people on the streets. But since CBP has been so overwhelmed with the large numbers coming in, they have been forced to release as such. As more and more people have been on the streets in recent days, sanitation and cleanliness have become a concern out here. We're not seeing any porta potties or temporary toilets, showers or sinks. And as you can imagine, the smell is beginning to add up. Oh, wow. Look, El Paso is Venezuelans too. And that's why tonight it's redolent of diversity, brimming with the gift of illegal immigration. That'll be Edgartown, Massachusetts soon. But we can't stop there. Why would we? If we're really going to make Martha's Vineyard look like the world the people who vacation on Martha's Vineyard have created for the rest of us, we're going to need to import graffiti artists, and armed robbers, and subway rapists, and the drug-addicted homeless community. Many, many of those. And their tents. Why should they be living outside your house when they could be camped on Barack Obama's $12 million lawn? That seems fair. Why isn't it fair? Well, unfortunately, we don't expect Obama to see it the same way. He is a racist, as we've established. And so apparently are his fellow liberals. They are outraged by the idea of illegal aliens near their island vacation homes. Before long, they'll be tweeting in solidarity with the Vineyard's white community. Hashtag, I stand with Martha's Vineyard. Little island emojis in their bios. Hilarious. That could actually happen, by the way. Because in the end, liberals really do stand with Martha's Vineyard against everyone else. And honestly, on some level, we can kind of understand why. If we're being honest, we don't want to see Martha's Vineyard trashed. We're Americans, and Martha's Vineyard is a beautiful place. It's a sin to destroy beautiful things, always. Unfortunately, and this really is the point, Martha's Vineyard is one of a dwindling number of beautiful places left in our country. Martha's Vineyard is what most of America once was, not all that long ago. Small, socially cohesive, orderly, safe, with traditional human-centered architecture and big stretches of nature unspoiled by industrial wind farms and dollar stores? The people who live in Martha's Vineyard now didn't build any of that. The people who did build it are long gone, along with the attitudes and values that made it possible. The people who live there now just came for the nostalgia, and all that's left, really, are the buildings and the beaches, but still, you'd hate to see them wrecked. On the other hand, at this point, we may have no choice. No sane country would allow millions of foreign nationals to walk across its borders illegally 
and then immediately give them government benefits in exchange for mocking our rule of law. No one would ever do that. It is suicide. Over time, it will destroy the United States. Everyone can see that, no matter what they say. But the people who vacation on Martha's Vineyard don't care. They are making this possible. They support it. They vote for it. They fund it. And they can do all of that because they are so insulated from the effects of Joe Biden's lunatic immigration policies that none of it matters to them. The country collapses. Big deal. They live on an island. But to the rest of us, it is a big deal. This is our country. We were born here. We plan to die here. We have nowhere else to go. And we don't want to live in a slum. Maybe Martha's Vineyard will finally understand. There is something extraordinarily ironic about the hue and cry that is now coming from top level Democrats over the move by border state Republicans. Ron DeSantis in Florida, which technically is not a border state, but there's a lot of illegal immigration into Florida or Greg Abbott in Texas, who have now been saying to Democratic governors and Democratic mayors, you know, guys, if you love illegal immigration so much, if you want to say that you are a sanctuary city without actually having to deal with the predominant force of illegal immigration, and guess what? You asked for it, you got it. And so Greg Abbott and Governor DeSantis, they've now been sending illegal immigrants to deep blue areas where they support sanctuary cities and open illegal immigration. They've been saying, now we'll see how much you like it. We'll see how, how altruistic you are when your hand is in your own pocket and not ours. We'll see how, we'll, we'll see how kind and charitable you are with your own resources and, and how much you like illegal immigration when it actually affects you. We'll see how much you enjoy defund the police when the criminals are sitting right side your house. Right? We'll see how much you enjoy homelessness. When again, there are people who are camped out in your front yard. We'll see how much you enjoy high tax rates when there is no state and local tax deduction. Making people own the consequences of their own political decision-making is a net positive. I love, I just fucking love that Tucker Carlson. That's some funny ass shit. Just funny ass shit. So here's an article to kind of close out our immigration. How the AP slanted the border coverage to hide the crisis. Wire service ditched border surge after facing activist pressure. And the rest of this article pretty sums up. A, most of the big networks didn't go to the border, so you couldn't see the border. Then you couldn't use the word crisis. Crisis wasn't a word you could use. It wasn't even subtle. If you're over 10 years old and you pay a fucking attention, you remember Trump. And now you remember how they just spun it. To this shit, uh, article on Mediate, Biden hits back at critics of his mega threat speech. Threat to democracy, democracy, terror in Michigan speech. They're destroying American democracy. In here, he says, extreme Republicans don't just threaten our personal rights and economic security. They embrace political violence. Just look at January 6th. That's what they're saying. They refuse to accept the will of the people. Look at them pushing the big lie continually. They threaten our very democracy. I get criticized. I'm not going to take the time, but I just criticize for saying they're a threat to democracy. Well, a threat to democracy can almost be defined by saying if you call for political violence or you defend it, or you don't allow for the legitimate transfer of power, that's when democracy is at risk. And that is out and out lie. It's just a lie because they did it themselves. And everybody knows it. But we don't ever follow up in the media. Kenosha writing duo, man who f f shot first in jail, holding for six felonies, including armed robbery, and so is the girl. 
Did that ever make the news? No. But it goes with his speech. It started the division, started the us and them, started violence that was okay if you're a lefty but not a righty. And now you have media and these two elected officials saying this stuff on the floor of the fucking Congress. When I hear my colleagues talking about how, you know, it should be states' rights or uh, government should not be telling us what to do, the word hypocrites, it doesn't even go far enough to call them out on what they're doing. This is an outright attack on women in this country. That is how I see it. That is how more and more women and those who support our right to make decisions about our own bodies. That is how we see it. And why? <laughs> because that's what's happening. Madam President, I yield the floor, but clearly, you know, this is a um, literally call to arms in our country. Yield the floor. <clears throat> the senior senator from Oregon. Madam President. Um, January 6, 2021 will never be forgotten, an infamous day in American history. MAGA Republicans descended upon the Capitol, engaged in an insurrection. Uh, they occupied the Capitol. Five people were killed, hundreds injured, including hundreds of Capitol Hill police officers attacked and bludgeoned. Um, uh, it was uh, a day that we'll never forget. And people on the local level uh, at affected school board meetings, they won't forget the MAGA uh, Republicans descending on their school board meetings uh, after January 6th, like January 6th, disrupting meetings. It was a co coordinated uh, attack happening across the country. Americans won't forget about it. Uh, school board uh, members, teachers, administrators, subjected to violence, threats of violence, harassment, intimidation. Uh, and in response to that, the National School Boards Association sent a letter to the Biden administration seeking federal help. Things had gotten so far out of hand. And by the way, there's not one scintilla of evidence, either direct or indirect, that there was any coordination between the Biden administration and the National School Boards Association uh, that caused that letter to be sent seeking federal assistance. And so uh, in response to that request, I'm joined now by Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones, David Korn. He's the author of the new book, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. Welcome, sir. Uh, thanks for having me, Ari. Is your book timely, or have you just always had a little skepticism towards Republicans and it's been true for a while? Well, I started this book over a year ago. I went looking for actually a book on this subject. You know, I, we see what's been happening in the last few years. And I wondered if there was anyone who had looked at the long-term relationship between the Republican Party and far-right extremism. And I discovered that no one had really looked at the history of the party through that lens. I went back and did it. I start really with McCarthyism and came up with this. I think it's the history of the dark side of the GOP. A look at seven decades of the GOP encouraging and exploiting 
extremism, tribalism, bigotry, paranoia, conspiracy theory. That isn't the totality of the Republican Party, but it isn't something that started with Trump. Trump's not an aberration. He's a continuation, a culmination. It's always, always has been there, and it's always been essential to the Republican Party's strategy to win elections. So uh, the book came out this week, and like all authors, you hope for a little luck, and part of the luck is that I think the conversation we're having now shows that this book is very timely and relevant because it gives us this historical context as we consider what MAGA extremism means within the Republican Party. And we debate whether Biden is wrong or right when he talks about Trump leading the Republican Party in the direction of fascism or semi-fascism. And, you know, my point is that the Republican Party has been leaning in this in this direction for seven decades through basically every presidency and presidential campaign. The abject ne negligence of the Republicans who have been running it for so long. An important detail, not in the document, Sarah, but uh, the MyPillow guy, um, <laughs> what is it, and Trump ally Mike Lindell, saying that the FBI served him with a subpoena for the contents of his phone what there's an example here which i thought was a small one but but illustrative about the michael cohn charging document um and it was it was changed to remove references to the idea that trump acted in concert with and coordinated with cohn to make illegal campaign contributions even though it was very very clear that there was pressure from above uh to do precisely that what do you think about when you think about a just department of justice in a trump second term how do you think of that? I, um, I think I've said this before. I think of that, that I don't have enough alcohol in my apartment to deal with that because there clearly would not be a rule of law. I mean, the, you're basically, he's going to pardon whoever he wants to pardon. He can ask them to commit crimes for him. Uh, and you, you could have people who, as you said, who are like Bill Barr, uh, but even even worse, I mean, he was thinking of installing Sidney Powell as a special counsel. So um, the people he surrounded himself and emulates are an absolute nightmare to a working fundamental democracy. So it, it's really unfathomable to people at the department and outside of the department. And those are Republicans and Democrats um, who I think all share that view if you believe in a rule of law. From the floor of the Senate. First and foremost, that Johnson's a fucking piece of shit. The walls are closing in. There have never been Republicans in charge of Mississippi. That's a total lie that he's doing right there. And laughing about a gentleman getting his phone. They went and got private fucking people's phones and took them. That would never happen to a Democrat. You would never see that. That is a bridge too far but now the president said it why not trans professor writer condones any and all violence against libs of tiktok now it's legal the president said it they're an existential threat they gotta go away department of defense literally hired a woman that was a fucking out and out goddamn racist racist Defense Department equity chief has taken her account private after anti-white tweets. The tweets by Keisha Wing, an Army veteran and the current DEI chief of the DOD education activity, and first contacted or reported by Fox when the outlet contact of her comment or Twitter account was made private. I'm exhausted with these white folks 
in these professional development sessions, Wing was overseeing curriculum of DOD. This lady actually had the caucasianity, Caucasianly, to say that black people can be racist too. I had to stop the session and give Karen the business. We are not the majority and we don't have power. The diversity chief continued, Caudacity is a port portmanteau referencing audacity expressed by white people. But, you know, why not? This is our media. Um, I think... Let me see. This was on MSDNC, and they just love them some CRT. Tremaine, as always, it's great to talk to you. Um, I know you moderated um, a town hall uh, that focused on these kind of anti-CRT laws and what black voters can actually do about it, how they fight back, right? What stood out to you? What did you learn? I'll tell you what, Yasmin, it's always great to be on the campus of an HBCU, given their long history and tradition, and to be here at TSU uh, to have the town hall and engage with uh, black students and educators and thinkers and change makers about this very issue. Because in so many ways, Texas has become ground zero over uh, the story we tell about America, the mythology, and everything in between. It was a great opportunity to hear from them. Let's take a listen. What matters is we have all been taught the history of a country that does not exist. So uh, the history of the country we've been taught doesn't explain January 6th. Mm -hmm. It doesn't explain why you have legislatures all over the country that are trying to make it more difficult to vote. While you have one political party that's now saying, well, if democracy um, is not majority white, we may not actually believe in democracy anymore. I personally believe that the attack on CRT is more of a situation where some people don't want their grandparents to be seen. Mm. They don't want their aunts and uncles to be seen in those pictures of lynchings and things of that nature because they're gonna recognize those faces. You know, what I found here at Texas Southern is there's kind of an overlap, right? Those same lawmakers who are pushing uh, these anti-CRT bills are also the ones pushing a policy that attacks a woman's reproductive rights. Right. The same ones that are gerryman gerrymandering voting districts, right? And so uh, it's always, you know, uh, parts of a bigger machine here. So it is all of those things combined, but they see one as a proxy for all those others. But again, for black folks in particular, these young black people, it's not lost on them that the franchise in so many ways is kind of fragile at this moment. There's going to be an attack on that. So all those things together. So, so what are they saying? What are these young black voters saying about what they need to do to stop it, to fight back? Well, the, the first thing through the lens of CRT and the truth about um, America's history and being seen, it's actually addressing with that, uh, addressing that truth. There's no room for that anywhere. There's just no room. This is the stuff that, why I started with that soundbite. The last soundbite was a Mueller investigator. I don't have enough alcohol in my apartment to deal with a Trump second term. That was the soundbite before the break, and I forgot to say it that way. But that's who was investigating. That's what we have problems with our FBI now. They are out and out over the top. Facebook spied on private messages of Americans who questioned the 2020 election. You can guarantee, if you were like me and were talking to your sister, that it was rigged fortified, whatever, they went into your private messages. And they're doing it again. This is from the Federalist. 
Uh, following heavy documentation of the meddling, big tech companies are in- intent on using same strategy, and they're openly admitting as much. Facebook wrote in a blog post, largely consistent with policies and safeguards from 2020. Posts rated as false or partly false by one of Facebook's 11 so-called fact-checkers who receive a label title and false information, causing their outreach to be dramatically limited. Lead Stories, one of Facebook's many left-wing fact-checkers, partly funded by the DNC itself said it before twitter is going to do stuff tiktok's gone i'm not even going to bring it out snapchat everything you saw before with the do you want to read the article should you uh this has been disproven by fact checkers it's all going to be there they're never going to stop doing it and this is our biggest problem right now this sums it up The demand for white supremacy coming from FBI headquarters vastly outstrips the supply of white supremacy, said one agent, who spoke on the condition of anonymity. We have more people assigned to investigate white supremacists than we can actually find. Let that sink in. It's exactly what we said. There is no white supremacy. What are you fucking talking about? There's black supremacy. There's Antifa. We just had a whole summer where black supremacists, supported by the media, torched cities at $2 billion. But we're not going to do that. I mean, we'll never get to the bottom of almost any of this fucking shit. It'll just never fucking happen. Here's Rand Paul once again dick slapping. Faki. Uh, but she's had the flu for 14 days. Should she get a flu shot? Well, no. If she got the flu for 14 days, she's as protected as anybody can be because the best vaccination is to get infected yourself. And so she if, she re- if she really has the flu, if she really has the flu, she definitely doesn't need a flu vaccine. If she really has the flu. She right. should not get it again. No, she doesn't need it because the, it's, the be, it's the most potent vaccination is getting infected yourself. This is an ongoing question, and, you know, we've had ever-evolving opinions from you, Dr. Fauci. Currently, antibody surveys show that uh, 80% of children, approximately 80% of children, have had COVID. And yet there are no guidelines coming from you or anybody in the government to take into account their naturally acquired immunity. You seem quite certain of yourself in 2004, but in 2022, there's a lot less certainty. One of the things that we also know after looking at this for two to three years uh, is that the mortality uh, from COVID is very similar, if not less, than, than influenza. So when we look at this, we wonder you know, why you seem to really embrace basic immunology back in 2004 and how you or why you seem to reject it now? Well, I don't uh, reject basic immunology, Senator, and I have never denied that there is importance of the protection following infection. However, as we have said many times and as has been validated by the authorization of the, by the FDA through their committee and the recommendation by the CDC through their committee that a vaccination following infection gives an added extra boost. And that film that you showed 
is really taken out of context. I believe that was when someone called in who had had a reaction to a vaccine and asked me through a telephone in the interview if they should get vaccinated again. So it was in the context of someone who had a reaction. And as a matter of fact, Reuters fact check looked at that and said, Fauci's 2004 comments do not contradict his pandemic actually, stance. Actually, words don't lie. If you look at the words behind me, we can go over them a little bit at a time. She doesn't need it because the most potent vaccination right. is getting infected yourself. It so is true. It is true, Senator. It is a very potent way to protect. When you're trying to tell us that kids need a third or a fourth vaccine, are you including the variability or the variable of previous infection in the studies? No, you're not. Because when you have approved vaccines in recent times and the committees that have approved it for children don't report anything on right. hospitalization or death or transmission. Right. They only report that if you give them the jab, they'll make antibodies. And you can give kids hundreds of jabs and they'll make antibodies every time, but that does not prove efficacy. Okay. So what you're doing is denying the very fundamental premise of immunology that previous infection does provide some sort of immunity. It's not in any of your studies. Almost none of your studies from the CDC or from the government have the variable of whether or not you've been previously infected. So let's look at adults. I've had three infections. Should I get a fourth one? If you're going to measure whether I get a fourth one, you need a, a category that has a fourth one in it and you need one that has nothing in it, no vaccine or the fourth vaccine. But you also need to know whether they've been infected. If you ignore whether they've been infected, you're ignoring a vaccine, basically. So you're ignoring a variable. So what you're giving us is this, the, you decry, and people decry vaccine hesitancy. It's coming from the gobbledygook that you give us. You're not paying attention right. to the science. The very basic science is that previous infection provides a level of immunity. If you ignore that in your studies, if you don't present that in your committees, you're not being truthful or honest with this. Uh, Senator, if I might respond, I have never, ever denied fundamental immunology. In fact, I wrote the chapter in the textbook of medicine Is it any on the, fundamental any, any of the immunology. Any of the guidelines for vaccines, you know, do any of the guidelines for vaccines from the government include previous infection as something to base your decision-making on with vaccines? Do uh, any of the guidelines involve previous infection? That's why you're ignoring previous right. infection, because it doesn't involve any of the guidelines. And furthermore, we've been asking you, and you refuse to answer, whether anybody on the vaccine committees gets royalties from the pharmaceutical companies. I asked you last time, and what was your response? We don't have to tell you. Right. We've demanded them through Freedom of Information Act, and what have you said? We're not going to tell you. But I tell you this, when we get in charge, we're gonna change the rules, and you will have to divulge where you get your royalties from, from what companies, and if anybody on the committee has a conflict of interest, we're gonna learn about it. I promise you that. Uh, Mr. Chair, can I, can I respond to that, please? Man. Okay, there are two aspects for what you said. You keep saying you approve, you do this, you do that. The committees that give the approval are FDA through their advisory committee. The committees that recommend are CDC through their advisory committee. And you keep saying, I'm the one that's approving a vaccine 
based on certain data. So I don't really understand, with all due respect, Senator. You're the and one I that said you would not no. reveal, you would not reveal what companies well, well, gave you the gave you royalties or what company gave the other scientists royalties. Gotta move That's on. What you told oh. the committee, Senator Paul. Sir, so, so, can I please answer that? Briefly, you yes. keep asking committees. They're not my committees. They're the VERPAC committee for the FDA and the ACIP for the CDC. So I don't have any idea what goes on. And they with won't the re reveal, as well as you, won't reveal okay, what we're gonna, companies we're going to move on. We're over time. Senator Paul, you're over. Everyone is over a little bit. I just want to make sure we keep on time here. For the record, I know Chair Murray and previous chairs of this committee of both parties both parties have found videos to be out of order, and I will note for the record the video is out of order. We'll move to Senator Smith. Everything you have, your clothes, your glasses, the car you got her on, your phone, the table you're sitting at, the chair, the carpet under your feet, everything you've got is petrochemical products. What would you do with that? Tell the world. If I had that power in the world, what actually I don't need that power because what I would do is ask you, sir, from Louisiana. I'm giving you the to power. Search, You're presenting to search it's you, sir, what's from what's Louisiana positive. to search your heart and, and understand why the EPA knows that toxic petrochemical facilities My are some of the lady. most toxic I, polluting trying, facilities in the, the floor, world boo. and are killing black people throughout Louisiana. Okay, so my so first thing would to be you to search your heart consumed. and ask your God what you are doing to the black That's and our poor God. people no in about Louisiana. That. You know, uh, that would be my first thing. Repent. Repent, you fuel user. They're even putting up this brainwash, Unite Against Violence. How can we stop hate-fueled violence together? Well, I don't know. Maybe don't break everybody into individual groups and then say white people are bad and say everybody who disagrees with me is an enemy of the state. That could be a fucking idea. I don't know. Could be me. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, what the fuck? Chick-fil-A is under fire for a tweet the social media user called out as Twitter uses racist. It was never true. It was wrong. It was recanted. I mean, I just... I just... Sometimes you see this stuff and you're just shocked. You're just shocked. Just this week, an article broke from WAPO that the majority of the IRS people, there was a huge amount of IRS employees who didn't pay their taxes. So Yellen went out and did this. Today I want to spend some time discussing how the new IRS funding in the Inflation Reduction Act will make these types of investments possible as well as its impact on the American economy. But first, I want to begin by speaking about the IRS itself. As our nation's revenue collection agency, the IRS is a foundation of our government and our society. The IRS collects 96% of the revenue that funds the federal government that supports our priorities from national security to infrastructure to social security. 
It's also one of the very few parts of the federal government that touches nearly every American household. IRS employees are known for their extraordinary dedication to public service. They have always served with distinction. But over the past couple of years, the employees of the IRS have been called to step and further to serve the American people. Yeah. A few off-the-wall stuff that we're going to do This Is America today. Some good stuff. All right. First and foremost, we have this. Boston Marathon is going to do a non-binary catalog. You know they're doing that, or category. They're going to do that because they knew the mob was going to get them eventually. You have this CNN soundbite. Lisa France rips Matt Walsh for bizarre objection to Black Mermaid. The reality is that's a lie, but I'll fill it in on the other side. All right, joining us now is CNN Digital senior entertainment writer Lisa France. I kind of get a tear in my eye just watching their little, you know, their little eyebrows go up in recognition as they see someone who looks like them on the screen. It's just amazing to witness that joy. It is. This is what we mean when we talk about black girl magic and black boy joy. I mean, I'm about to weep like an ocean full of tears. It's just so uplifting and sweet and I need more content like this is basically what I'm saying it's just beautiful yeah you see how it matters when you just sort of put it there and wait to see what happens here's the thing and this is kind of I think one of the ugly sides of this though is this isn't totally well received and I don't get this Lisa why because we see I mean the Little Mermaid isn't real right the Star Wars characters they aren't real hobbits they aren't real why are people you know why, I mean, I, I know why, but you have people who get so upset about these total, it's not like they're changing some sort of historical uh, figure. So I, I just don't even get it. Well, you know what is real? Racism is real, unfortunately. Yes. And people get so offended. I mean, and to those who say we're always trying to make things about race, People make it about race when they're online and they're trying to debate the fact that, oh, she couldn't have darker skin because she's a mermaid and she's under the water and the sun wouldn't be able to reach her. That's about race. So, you know, to say, oh, we're not making it about race. We just don't want to see this remade. There was no reason for it. I just wish people would keep the same energy for racism as they do when they get called out about racism. That would be, I want to be a part of that world, actually. Yeah, we're just... What he said was that they would be translucent. It was a joke. I have yet to find anybody talking about the Black Mermaid. I didn't even know it was going to be a Black Mermaid because I don't think anybody gives a flying left-fucking-footed fuck about the Little Mermaid. Everything coming on Disney's woke. We expect it to be a gay, transgender. It's a mermaid with a dick and balls flopping around in the fucking ocean. Nobody cares. But they need this. It's election time. So for This Is America, we're going to start with uh, CNN or ABC talking about um, he needs to spin it, and then they spin it for him. And then one, two, three, four, four sound bites on fucking abortion. The view one's a total lie. They are doing late-term abortions. You're a fucking liar. And then uh, add matters to it because, once again, FLOTUS is our president. If you don't know that, you better ask somebody. And she's asked about books. 
because they're trying to get everything in before the election. They burn books. They, they don't. That's you guys. They just don't want little kids getting uh, gay books with dick sucking in kindergarten. That's the only thing people are talking about. It's, it's not that they care about you suck dick. They just want the kids seeing it. So that's your This is America, and we will close this show after. It's time for the worst soundbite. When the liberal media is pushing one of them agenda story and says, This is America. 2021. Mary, not welcome news at the White House. No, but the president says he's not worried about these latest inflation numbers, and he's putting a positive spin on things. He is stressing that inflation is relatively flat, up just one-tenth of a point since July, and he argues the economy is strong, pointing to low unemployment numbers and plunging gas prices. The president is also touting Democrats' new Inflation Reduction Act. He's promising it will do just that, that it will bring down energy and prescription drug costs. But, George, it was notable that at a big celebration here at the White House yesterday, the president largely ignored these worse-than-expected numbers. Look, the White House is well aware that inflation is a big potential political liability. With the midterms now just eight weeks away, the economy is top of mind for voters. And while the president is confident that he can turn this around, the White House does admit there is still a lot more work to be done here. Yes, this has been the toughest issue for the White House. The uh, president cannot be happy about any of it. Good morning. No, he cannot. Tony, good morning. That inflation report uh, dashes hopes of a quicker economic rebound. Government figures show groceries climbing more than 13% on average, electricity spiking nearly 16%, and rent up nearly 7% over the last year. Those high prices, plus the likelihood the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates again, sent the markets tumbling. Just as the president and Democrats were celebrating passage of their Inflation Reduction Act. The new law provides funding to fight climate change, ease health care costs, and hike taxes on big corporations. But it does nothing to address short-term price hikes. The president said last night he isn't worried. The stock market doesn't necessarily reflect the state of the economy. Your body, our choice. Should that be a bumper sticker right now? I mean, no lies detected on my end, Steph. Run with it. And I think Democrats need to keep it front and center. And this egg from, uh, from that we got today in this form of this horrible uh, national abortion ban, I think it's going to do that work for Democrats so that they can continue to leverage the momentum they have and they can continue to draw the contrast with the extremist MAGA Republicans that they've painted him to be, that Republicans have lived up to being because they've shown that they're hell-bent on controlling and punishing women and pregnant people. They've shown that this was never going to end with Roe being overturned and that this is their intention. And I hope Democrats across the country run that 15 seconds that that we heard from Lindsey Graham earlier today where he said when Republicans take back Congress this is going to be put for a vote this is what they want to focus on and I need that in ads across the country I know multiple progressive organizations are investing in ad campaigns they need to put that clip in there so that voters know plain as day what's at stake because what is clear based on what we've seen thus far is that Democrats are mobilizing at historic rates independents are swinging more Democrats and even some anti or, or excuse me pro-choice Republicans are even been willing to vote and support Democratic candidates because none of them want anything. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, Speaker, you predicted that 
House Democrats are going to defy the odds and yeah. actually pick up seats in this year's midterm mm. election um, and thus retain the chamber. At yeah. the same time, we often hear calls for generational change within mm -hmm. the Democratic Party and within uh, yeah. American politics generally. Insider reported just this week that this Congress is statistically the oldest one ever. If Democrats do retain the House, do you plan to seek another term as Speaker? Why or why not? Not after that glorious introduction you gave. <laughs> Look, right now, my focus is on holding the House. How many times have I told you over the past year and a half plus that the Democrats would hold the House, despite some of the um, so-called conventional, so-called wisdom in Washington, D.C., saying that in the off year, the president's party always loses uh, Congress or, the, or seats. Uh, the fact is, that isn't conventional, and it isn't wisdom, because convention has changed. We communicate in a different way. Uh, we have a different reality here now in terms of our own democracy being on the ballot, our planet being on the ballot, the future of our country being on the ballot, and uh, also we always believed we would win, so we always prepared for it. Mobilization to own the ground. Our distinguished chairman, Sean Patrick Maloney, began that even before January 6th. As soon as he was chosen by our colleagues to be the chair, even before January 6th, you can just imagine the momentum it had it picked up. Secondly, uh, mobilization depends on messaging, and the legislation that we are passing has been very, very, um, uh, shall we say, encouraging to our grassroots. And then the third is, of course, the resources. It's, it begins with an M, but I don't like to bring it up. Uh, the resources needed to win. So we have been ready. So when the Supreme Court decision came down, it wasn't a case of, oh, if only we had known. No, we were ready because we believed and because we saw the urgency of it. Now, in addition to that, forgetting what we believe and what we were prepared for, the most important part of it is our candidates believed. They believed in the future. They believed in themselves. They believed that they could win in those districts. So we were in place with a great array of candidates, a few more chosen, just a few more chosen uh, since that decision. But the decision has really made a remarkable difference. But even so, our kitchen table issues are where people make their decisions as well whether the cost of prescription drugs, the rest of it. But again, a woman's right to choose is a kitchen table issue in terms of family decision making. And so we're pretty excited about the prospects. We're, we, this morning, we were able to welcome to our caucus two newly sworn in members. It's Congressman Ryan of New York, Congressman Mel Tola of, of, of Alaska, two places nobody expected us to win, including the Republicans. Uh, so we're very proud of the success that we're having, and we fully intend to hold the House. And even though there are some among you who belittle my uh, political instincts and the rest, uh, I got us here twice uh, to the majority, and I don't intend to are giving it up. Yes, sir, one last. Kirsten, I want to stick with you. Uh, what is Senator Lindsey Graham doing? 
Why is he proposing? I mean, well, honestly, well, I don't understand this. Why is he proposing a federal anti-abortion law that would ban all abortion across the country at 15 weeks? I don't think that he understands how pregnancy works. You don't often get testing, important testing, until 20 weeks. What is this that he's doing? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think he really cares uh, to understand it. And he, you know, he, he's clearly established himself as somebody who's pretty extreme on this issue. I mean, he had had a previous bill that was at 20 weeks, so this one is worse than that one, but the 20-week span also is pretty bad. Uh, I don't know what he's doing because he's, you usually look at these things and you think, well, they're do, you know, doing it because it's helpful politically and perhaps it's helpful to him in some way, but it's not helpful to the Republican Party. And that's been pretty clear in the way Mitch McConnell's responded to it, which is to say, uh, you know, that the Republican position is that they believe this should be handled by the states, uh, which is actually something that Lindsey Graham said not that long ago uh, and, and now has turned around and tried to uh, introduce this very radical legislation that. And just to clear up a, a often referenced myth that is used to get a certain political outcome, there is no such thing as people having late term abortions. Say that again. There is no such thing as people having late term abortions. <laughs> 1.3% uh, of abortions are performed at greater than 21 weeks, and usually for heartbreaking medical reasons. Say that again. <laughs> that is only done for heartbreaking medical reasons. I have yet to see one situation where someone decides that that is a myth being shopped around to get a certain political outcome. And 91% of all abortions are performed in the first trimester. So until we are all clear on the information and data, we should not be toying with this because it's being falsely shopped around. Well, it still doesn't make sense to me is that the Republican Party has always been the party of states' rights. It hasn't really worked out for the rest of the country because states' rights meant that black kids and white kids went to different schools and states' rights meant that, you know, black people could marry white people. And so the states' rights argument generally doesn't work for our country because you have to, you know, I guess the onus is on people to be good and to well, do the right thing and that doesn't though. necessarily happen with your party. And they made a law and now y'all went around and decided because your religious fervor got yeah. you crazy and decided that that, listen, I believe in life. I'm not anti-life. Right. I've never been anti-life. The conservatives tend to come at those social issues with have that baby no matter what, but we will not help so, you. So, and this is That's my gripe, right. but I do want to respond because Joy yeah. is out excellent points, but it's, it's very important to the Republican Party, to my friends, we have to provide for mothers once they have kids. Yeah. That's the problem where you cannot say you do not want them, you know, you don't want them to have abortions, but then they're also on their own after that. We'll Gotta come it. to the 21st century because we have to help mothers. Being pro-life needs to mean... Where is the line, in your opinion, with how much of a say parents should have when it comes to what their kids are learning in school? Well, I think with the pandemic, parents saw how hard teachers work and how difficult this job really is. And I think if they work together in their school districts and decide what they want with their curriculum. Is there a balance between, you know, this book should be in the library, this book All is under All books review. should be in the library. All books. This is America. We don't ban books. You know, when we started this show oh so long ago, things like this were fringe, and it was just a joke. But this was at a conference, 
And not only do they have all gender, they ask the men to sit to pee and respect to transgender people. That's what they're asking. Sit to pee. And I think that pretty much sums up everything. Everything we talked about today. It's agenda. It's perception. It's not real. And they don't want nothing to do with it. What was totally beautiful about what DeSantis did and what Abbott did and my brothers and sisters said it, everybody I talked to yesterday said it, almost everybody on Twitter said it, it was finally the Republicans acting like Democrats and bringing to light a serious problem that they don't want to fix and they don't want to deal with. It is very easy for these coasters to say, you don't need a car, you shouldn't have electricity made by a coal plant. You should be driving an electric car, but you're rural. None of that works. You can't clear crops with electric cars. We wouldn't be able to feed people. It's very easy to say you must accept this fucking transgender shit, but they're not doing it. And that's what always is the deal. It's just a talking point for them. When you go back to Hillary in 2016 in the emails, they were calling them taco bowls. The most important voters they wanted was Latino. Fucking taco bowls. That's what they called them. And none of it's genuine. It's disingenuous. So by DeSantis and Abbott doing this, you brought to the highlight that these people live in areas so they won't have them. They don't have the apparatus to take care of them because they don't want to take care of them. And our media will only cover this shit when a Republican does it. That's just the straight up facts. That's the way it is. And it's a joke. Overlying all this is just straight up fascism. They are fascist. You will do what the fuck they say, but they're not doing it. You will get that green car, but you're not going to use electricity to charge it. Because we fuck the grid up and put solar and fucking turbine. And it doesn't work in the winter. They're just a bunch of jackasses. And I I would do a video like that guy. How do you vote for a Democrat? They don't even believe what they're saying. They don't live what they're saying. And they're the biggest bigots out there. Because not only don't they like black people, Latino people living with them. They don't like you. And now because of a president who set the bar... Everybody's calling out Republicans as the Antichrist. And you watch. There will be blood drawn. People are going to get crazy because it's just going to ramp up. We have two months and these motherfuckers got to hold power. They're going to crack down social media, Google, newspapers. are going to run reports about every crazy thing they can think about because they know what they're doing is unconstitutional. They know the credit, the fucking credit card companies won't be able to do it anymore. They know they won't get their fucking college bailout. They know that we're going to fucking stop this crazy electric shit. Because we're not ready. So they're scared. They're going to pull out all the stops. 
you're going to have your phone tapped. You're going to have your messages tapped. And I won't be surprised you say something a little shady of the FBI at your fucking door. Because right now, the FBI is just the Gestapo of the Biden. And that's sad. That hasn't been that way since Hoover. But here we are. And it's fucked up. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politics Podcast. Please share this with family and friends. Go to foppodcast.com. Disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeah's. We're going to go with a Wednesday show. Uh, 21 September, Year of the Lord, 2022. Until then, thank you for listening. Y'all take care, and I'll see you Wednesday.